Good morning. I'm going to read from James 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Thank you, Linda. You can just leave that there. Wow, well, hey, good morning, Bergen Park. I got to tell you something that happened yesterday. Now, we had a men's breakfast. You may not know this. Quarterly, we have a men's breakfast, and I had to take a picture of the breakfast we had. <laughs> this is by far the best breakfast I have ever had at a church, and certainly in a men's event in any church, in any state, <laughs> anywhere. If that does not encourage you to gather with men in the church, I don't know what else will, guys. This was absolutely amazing. So I encourage you. I think we're doing it quarterly right now. But I know God's also at work in our leadership team from our staff to our leadership team of the women's ministry. I've seen the women gathering here on what days? Wednesdays and Tuesdays. Is that what it is? I've seen uh, their gathering uh, going through a Bible study. It's been excellent. My wife's been talking about that. And then likewise... Uh, we have two new groups that have started meeting on Monday night. There is a men's group that meets for BSF. If you haven't heard of BSF, it's called Bible Study Fellowship. Right now they're going through the Book of Romans. And so if you want to jump into that, I think it's around 6 or 6.30. If you get here at 6, you'll be early for 6.30. And so come at 6, so that's Monday night. And then I think on Friday morning the women are also meeting, and that group just got kicked off, just got started. So there's a lot of things that are taking place, and it's good to be a part of the body of Christ. You know, if we could take uh, just a moment and to step into your life, you know, open the doors of your house, maybe peer through the windows, listen in on the conversations that are taking place, you know, what's the common message? What's the common conversation in your home? You know, if you listen into my home, you may, may be caught a little off guard. The language of our home is the language of Captain Underpants. Whatever the latest movie is that just came out, uh, the, the favorite phrases from our movies in the past, maybe what we're reading or the things that are going on. Uh, 
But as we get into the book of James this morning, what he talks about is often as we go through life, what impacts us the most, what shapes our life, and really what shapes our life in terms of how do we respond to trials, how do we respond to temptation, are the things that we listen to, the things that we repeat, the things that we talk about. What are we listening to, and how does what we're listening to impact the way that we live? That when trials come, when hardships come, and we all have them, it's the things we're listening to that often influence us. I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, I know in my younger days when I used to listen to political talk radio all the time, and maybe that's your story. I saw some eyes raise. You know, I would get to work, I'd get home, and I would just simply be angry. Just angry. Angry, angry, mad, frustrated, angry. And I was wondering why. I couldn't figure out, you know, why am I so frustrated? My wife would sometimes say, you know, you had a great day. Why are you so angry? And it took me a while because I'm slow. My wife's a lot quicker because she would say, you know, what are you listening to? But I realized what I was listening to, the language, the, the, the way things, people were approaching things, it had an impact. And so when I walked into that house, what came, what came out honestly, is what was in there. And what James is saying today as we walk through this book, and I hope you found it incredibly practical, meaningful. I hope you're applying kind of what James is teaching us. He's going to say that when we walk through trials, we go through life, what comes out most often is what we're listening to, what we're talking about, what we're captivated by. And he's going to show us three things. One, there is a word that gives life. There is a word that changes life. And in the end, there is a word that is life. That there's a word that gives life, it gives birth to life. There's a word that changes life. And then in the end, there's a word that is life. And as we walk through this life, we want to be connected to not something that kills or steals or destroys, not something that ruins marriages and and creates conflict, but rather let's listen to something that brings joy and peace and hope and in the end, faithfulness. And so let's listen to what God has said. So let's jump in. If you will, take out your Bible. You can even turn it on. That's okay. And we're going to follow along in verses 19 through 27. And actually, last week, if you were here, there's a verse at the end of what we looked at last week in verse 18 that kind of picks up on where James heads today. And in James chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, Of his own, meaning of God's own will, he brought us forth, by the word of truth. That he's saying the life that we have in Christ, the life we have with God was produced in us. We came alive through the word of the gospel. That we were, and you may have heard this term, we were born again. Now when you hear that term born again, I think there's a lot of negative connotations attached to that word. And born again is attached to a lot of different things. Certainly in the marketing arena, you've got a born again car, you know, got a born again house, you got a reborn family, whatever it is. There's a lot of words that are associated, that word's associated with a lot of things. But in the scripture, what you find is that the new birth, new life, it's not a brand of Christianity. It's not a kind of church. Rather, the new birth is the language of salvation. And so what James is saying in verse 18 is that the the way we come alive to God is the word that's been planted in us brings life. That the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, through the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and then his eventual return, it's like a power. It comes in and it 
It's like a seed that plants life, and then that life continues to grow. And you see this throughout the New Testament. It's not just James that describes salvation that way. But rather, throughout the New Testament, we see the same language. And so you may remember in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Peter likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. And in 1 John, John writes, Whoever loves has been born of God, and whoever loves knows God. See, the language of new birth is not a kind of Christianity. No. It's the way we come to know God, and it's the way that we grow in that knowledge of God. That His life, His very DNA, is now at work within us. And I love what James says at the end of verse 18. He says that this new birth has transformed us, and he calls us a kind. Do you see this? A kind of first fruits. Now, that's a pregnant term, because in the Old Testament, first fruits was the first of the harvest, and it's what you presented to God as an offering to Him. Now, what's incredibly dangerous about that is when it's the first of the harvest, when it's the first check that comes in in a month, when it's the first sale that I've made, when it's the first to really hit my pocketbook, you don't know what's going to come in the following months. And when you offer the first fruits of your harvest, there was no promise that the locusts wouldn't come or the rains would stop or maybe that, uh, that things within my business or in my life would turn bad. And so when you offered the first things to God, the first of the harvest, you're saying, Lord, everything I have is yours. Now notice, James isn't saying that our stuff is the first fruits. The miracle is that he calls us the first fruits. Now the first fruits of what? Bergen Park, we are the first fruits of what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. We're the first fruits of God's harvest. Now, how do we know we're the first fruits? Because He's alive in us. And if He's alive in us, what God has done in us, He wants to now start to do through us. And so that the life that He has in us is going to impact the lives that are around us. Whether that's in our family, in our homes, in our place of work, the life that God has placed in us, He wants to work through us, to impact the people around us, so that in Evergreen, in this community, we might live for the glory of God. That we might live in such a way and realize, Paul says that Christ is in you, and Christ is in you, which is the hope of glory. Now, glory is a pretty weighty term, and actually that's what it means To glory is to have weight. When something has glory, when we go to the football game, uh, the reason it's glorious is it's weighty. You hear all these people standing, cheering. You see the touchdown. You see the massive hit. It's weight. Well, he says the weight of glory, the weight of God, the weight of the totality of who he is, is that Jesus Christ is in you. And if Jesus is in you, he wants to work through you. And that's, that's the Jesus that the people in Evergreen need to encounter. Now, the only way we're going to do that is we have to walk with wisdom, as James is teaching us through the everyday stuff of life, that God has given us new birth. And our homes, our finances, the way we speak, the things we listen to, they should be like a harvest of first fruits. 
reflecting what is still to come, that the kingdom will one day come, and then everything will look as God looks. And so James says that we have this tremendous power in us, but notice something that he does in the continuing context in verse 19. He transitions from this idea that this word is now in you. You're the first fruits of everything that God's created. But then he says in verse 19, but know this, everyone should be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God and therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness or humility the implanted word which can save your souls. Now here's the question. If I am truly alive to God, why don't I live that way? I mean, imagine it. He says, you've been born again. That this new seed, God is alive in you. His very DNA is now working through you. And if I'm alive to God, why isn't life easier? Why in verse 19 am I someone who is slow to listen, quick to speak? And if I had to be honest, there are moments where I am quick to get angry. Doesn't that seem a little strange that the life of God can be in you and yet right next to that life of God is this this filth, this brokenness, this kind of ugliness inside of us, and the two are right side by side, that in one moment you can praise God, and then we get out of here and we're just simply cursing man, and not cursing, but just saying, this person has cut me off, taken my seat in the restaurant. Where is my food? Don't they realize who I am? In our hearts is this dichotomy on the one hand of of the beauty of God, the humility of God, but on the other side, there's this this pride. And what he's describing in verses 19 through 21 is a battle. It's a battle on the one hand between pride and self-righteousness, and on the other, he describes it down in verse 21 as the implanted word. There's two things within you. On the one hand, there's a self-centeredness. But on the other is this power, this implanted word which is inside of you, which he says can save you. Now here's the question. Which one won out this week? And I don't mean the Broncos. Inside of us, is it the implanted word? Or is it the pride of life? Which one did you give life to this week? Which one did we feed? Which one did we listen to? And what James is saying is we go through trials and hardships in life, what we listen to, what we bring into our lives, what we think about, will have a great outcome in the choices and the decisions we make. Now, it's interesting if you look down at the end of verse 21 and then also all the way down to the bottom in verse 27, what James does is he picks up on the language of the prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, and you got to read this, get to some of the small prophets and uh, books like Amos and Hosea, you're going to find some language in there that's pretty strong. And one of the things the prophets will say is if you want to know if your religion is true, if you want to know your heart is truly alive and your religion and your offerings are not a sham to God, there are two signs that God is alive within you. And James is simply picking up on this tradition of the prophets. And he says in the end of verse 21 that we need to walk away from filthiness, move away impurity. But then down in verse 27, he says to keep oneself unstained from the world and to look after orphans and widows in their distress. There's two signs of a life 
that has come alive through the gospel, through the word. And, and on the one hand, it's to look after orphans and widows, to look after the poor, the broken, the lost, the least, the lonely. And the second is to put away all filthiness and all brokenness, all deceit, all what he's describing in verse 19 and 20, all pride. And so there's two signs. Now, next week we're going to jump into what it looks like to, to care for the poor, to care for the broken, the outcast. But the first thing that we want to look at this week is what does it mean to really allow the Word to push aside all the brokenness of life, the anger, the pride, the self-centeredness, and to allow God to work through us. Because again, he's describing in verses 19 through 21 this battle. And what will win out? Will it be, on the one hand, a heart that's slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to become angry? Or will it be a heart that humbly submits to the word planted in us? Now, what he's saying in verses 19 through 21 is quite remarkable. That If you look at your life, the question you need to ask is this. You ready? How well do I listen to others? And how well do I really seek to understand what other people are saying? And how quick do I like to jump in and to add what I want to say into things? And then how quickly do I become angry? Because what he's saying is, in our relationships in life, the degree to which we do not listen to others, to that same degree, we will not listen to God. You notice what he's saying, verses 19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why is he addressing that? Because the same pride that keeps us from listening to others is the same pride that keeps us from listening to God. Because he's going to get on, he's going to get serious in a minute, and he's going to say, we can't just be hearers but doers. So what's he doing? He's already applying it in verses 19 through 21. And he's saying, if we do not listen, if we're not willing to meet someone where they are, why do we think that suddenly, if we're prideful outside of the context of God, that we're suddenly going to be humble before God? And so are we willing to listen? Are we willing to hear? Or in verse 21, are we willing to listen to the implanted word that is in us, which can save us? Now, i got to be honest right now, this is kind of a, a, a Greek geek moment. There are certain words in the New Testament that just kind of stand out for me, and one of those is this word implanted in us, that God's word is implanted in us. And it's an interesting word in the New Testament because it only appears once which means it's very difficult to understand. But when you look in some of the writings in the age, what you realize is the word implanted in us means natural to us. Now, natural to us is in opposition to what is acquired by us. Now, right now, what's happening for me is I'm inquiring and uh, acquiring information about Bergen Park and Evergreen through the conversations that we've had. And I'll tell you, it's been fantastic over the last three weeks to spend an hour uh, during the day, during the week, during the evening, just getting to know you, to hearing how God has used you and used Bergen Park Church in your life, and then also to hear how God, uh, maybe the vision of what God wants to do in the days to come, that I'm acquiring knowledge of this church and of this community. But what, what's unique about the gospel, about God, is it says it's not acquired. Rather, it's natural to us meaning the same substance that is in the Word of God is in us, that the same Holy Spirit that inspired God's Word is the same Holy Spirit that's now alive in us, meaning when we come before the Word of God, and I hope this has been your experience, there's moments where the Word of God wakes us up. 
Have you ever had those times? And I've had many moments where I've kind of read through my daily bread, read through my scripture in the morning, and I'll be honest, my heart was cold. It didn't move me. You know, I kind of read through it, and you get to that point, you're like, what did I just read? But then there's these other moments where you take the word and you start to meditate upon it. And it's as if it's like a hot iron sitting on a block of ice. And if you allow the word to stand long enough, it begins to melt the ice and you find suddenly that your heart becomes receptive and open to God. And it's as if, I don't know, it's as if God in that moment just kind of shows up and you realize that you're not just reading at this, it's not an intellectual exercise, there's an experience of a person that's now communicating to you and deep, as the psalmist says, right now is calling to deep. And suddenly my heart is alive. Have you had that experience? See, that's the experience of the new birth. That's the experience of the power that's in us, that the things of God, for those of us who have trusted in Him and following Jesus Christ, it's not something that we simply acquire. Rather, it's something that's natural to us, that there is a life in us, and that life wants to work itself through us to the people around us. The Word of God gives life. The question is, are we allowing that Word to change life? Because as he describes in verses 22 and following, he gives us this amazing image. And that's what I like about the book of James. He's always giving us illustration stories, little movie clips in the first century world in the background. And he describes this man who goes and looks at his face in a mirror. And it says, after he looks, he immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, I resonate with that. Because, man, when we tend to look in the mirror, we forget. We look, but we don't look intently, at least not for me. You, know, you kind of look, you check in, yep, that's me, that's where I am. And then we walk away and we forget what we look like. Now, in the first century, that was a lot easier because people didn't have a lot of mirrors. And the mirrors they had were not like ours. They were not a perfect reflection. Rather, they were polished metal. And when you looked into the metal, you wouldn't get a good idea of what you look like. In fact, many people, until mirrors were really perfected, did not know what they looked like. They couldn't see themselves. And see, what James is touching on is not just a, a physical reality. He's not giving us history of mirrors. Rather, he's showing us a deep spiritual reality that is in the heart of every man and woman. That when we come before the Word of God, we often avoid seeing ourselves. That when we come before the Word of God, there's something in me, there's some Teflon. You with me on that? that keeps what God is saying from really attaching itself to my soul, to my heart, showing me where I am. There's something I have, to, I have to break past to allow God to speak. And so what James does in verses 21 and following is he's describing what it means to allow the life-changing word to really begin to resonate in your heart and through that to begin to change you. So that when trials come and difficulties happen, you know how to listen to the voice of God instead of just simply listening to the tyranny of the urgent. That you know when those trials come how to listen to God's voice, that voice within you, as deep calls the deep, instead of listening to the tyranny of the urgent, or the pain of the present, or the fear of what may come. And so what he begins to do in verses 21 and following is gives us four points, four ideas of how we can cultivate the life of God that's in us. And the first thing that he says, and he says it three times, and you might have noticed this, is he repeats the word look. 
He says a man looks intently. He looks. He doesn't forget what he looks like. He continues to look. That when we come before God's Word, we've got to look. And you can't just look. You've got to look. Now, let me share with you how that works for us. Right now, my wife and I are looking. And we are looking intently for a house. And if you've ever been there, you know what I mean. When you look at those pictures, you're not looking at the pictures, are you? You're looking at what the pictures do not show. You're looking through the window and looking what's outside. You're looking at the backyard and you're asking yourself, why didn't they show us the front yard? I saw two bedrooms, but there's actually four. I saw two bathrooms. They say there's two and a half. What do you do? When you look, you look past what is there, and you look sometimes to what's not there, and you ask the question, what are they really communicating? What are they showing? And many of us, maybe you look that way when the stock market is rolling. You look. You don't look. You look intently. You wonder what's happening, what's going on, what's causing it to go up, what's moving it to go down. But when we come before the Word of God, which gives life, do we have that desire to look, and not just look, but to look intently? To look in the same way, which is the same word that Peter looked when he looked into the tomb on Easter morning. The same Greek word that James is using to describe looking intently is the same word that Peter is described as looking when he looked into the tomb. Well, how did Peter look? Just to gaze? No, he looked intently. He studied. He took it in. It was emotional. It was rational. When we come before the Word of God, we've got to look intently. And yet it's not enough just to look intently. It's not just the rational. What he gets to on the second point is the personal. We've got to look intently to the extent, to the point that we see ourselves. You've got to see your face, which means what is the Bible? James says it's a mirror. The Bible is a mirror that when we look into the Word of God, we find not just an, a rational, those are, though there's a rational, we find a personal encounter with a God that has given us life. And the very life that's in us is inspired in the Word of God, and it begins to speak, and it begins to reveal. And we have to start seeing ourselves. Now, it's easy to see others in the Word of God. And on Sunday mornings, it's easy to do one of these, you know. I wish she was here to hear that. I wish he was here to hear that. But see, the conviction that God brings when we look into his word intently is he begins to stir something within us. Now, what he stirs within us isn't a discouragement. Listen, the word of God is always to stir a joy in you. But if you don't know how to work through what he's sharing with you, you may never get to the joy. Because when you see the holiness of God, and you may notice this in the, you go to Isaiah, you go to Revelation 1, and, and there's people that stand in the presence of God. You know what they do? Probably what we would do. Fall as though dead before God. Because God is so great and so glorious to stand in His presence is absolutely terrifying. And yet what God says to us in His presence is, do not be afraid, stand. And see, that's what the Word of God is to do. On the one hand, it shows us who God is. But see, in seeing who God is, it should show us who we are. It should show us where we need to change. That in seeing who God is, we see where we are. And it shows us where we need to change. That we have to look, but we have to look personally. And we've got to allow that word, that we've looked rationally and personally, 
to be carried along with us. Because he says he doesn't look once, he continues. Meaning he's bringing the mirror with him when he goes to work or when he comes home. Now, how are we going to do that? How can you bring the mirror of the word with you? I mean, on the one hand, you could just walk around like this. It would be strange. You know, always have the Bible open, always kind of turning. And that's, I guess, one solution. But David had said, Lord, I hid your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Another way to say it is, Lord, I hid your word in my heart so that I might love you well. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. What is he describing? Those are three things you can listen to. To stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight. That's not rational. That's emotional. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he will meditate day and night. And what happens? He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. But not so the wicked. You see, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 is an introduction to the Psalms. And it's saying, this is how I want you to read this book. I want you to delight in what God says. And see, to delight in it means you've got to taste it. You've got to experience it. You've got to ask the spirit that's in you to make it alive to you. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to get around people who are passionate about it. It's got to be an intentional discipline in my life. Because the reality is we're all disciplined to listen to something. Bergen Park, what are you disciplining yourself to listen to? Because you turn it on in the morning. And you may even play it in your own mind. You get up and there's a a message that's playing. It's probably not the one from Sunday. There's a recording that you begin to hear as you face the day. What is it that we're listening to? Because notice, on the one hand, James says you got to look intently, you got to look personally, you got to carry it with you. But finally, and this is this is interesting. He calls the Bible the perfect law, but he he says it's the perfect law that leads to liberty. Do you notice that? The perfect law that gives freedom. Now, that seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? Laws don't set people free. You know, in our culture, our culture describes freedom as the absence of law. You know, freedom is the opportunity to do what I want, when I want, and when I want to, right? Freedom is the opportunity to set my own meaning in life, to set my purpose for no one to legislate morality for no one to say, this is what is right, this is what is wrong. Instead, freedom is to do what I want to do, what I desire to do, what I feel is right for me to do. Freedom is the absence of restriction. Now, the Bible comes at freedom from a very different point of view. It's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Rather, freedom is not the absence of restriction. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. Freedom is the presence of a law that captures your design, that allows you to be who you were fully created to be. Now, you get this in parenting. As you parent your kids, you'll see this, and you'll understand this, because there's times where my law to my kids does not seem like freedom. It seems like slavery. There's times where I ask my kids to do certain things. They don't want to do it. 
Everything within them says that what I'm asking is wrong, it's not good, it's not going to lead to joy in life. My kids experience that. I imagine all of us grew up at times and what our parents were communicating did not seem to lead to the freedom that we wanted in life. But when we parent our kids, hopefully we parent with a vision, not of where they are today, but of who they will be when they're 18, 19, 20 and they're no longer under our authority. Because I want to not simply legislate morality, I want to cultivate a heart in my sons that loves God and loves people. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, I've got to create law. I've got to create a home. I've got to create an environment that starts to cultivate the values of loving God in my child's heart and loving others so that when they get to 18, it's not the fear of will dad find out. It's the pleasure of pleasing a father who has sacrificed and loved and cared for his sons so that they might carry into the world a heart that loves God. What is freedom? It's not the absence of restriction. It's the presence of the right restrictions that lead to life. I mean, think of nature. Water is not restricting to a fish. Say to a fish, you know, you're restricted in life. You need to get out, experience life, get out of the water, experience land. Land is great. Sunshine is excellent. Now, once a fish steps out of water, gills stop working, fins stop working. Everything that was designed to bring freedom in the midst of the restriction of water is taken away. And what they find is not life, but death. Well, that's what the scripture describes when we step out from under the will of God. It's not life, it's death. It's not peace, instead it leads to destruction. Now, why is that and what are God's commands? And quickly, God's commands are always in line with who you are. They're always in line with who you are and what will bring joy in life. So what are the commands? We know them. Do not commit adultery. Why? Because it kills. It breaks up homes divides two families that are one suddenly become broken. It destroys the heart of a woman and the heart of a man. Not because God is keeping you from freedom, but God wants you to walk in the freedom of marital love. Why does he say forgive? Because you're created in the image of God. And though holding on to a grudge can feel good and exercising that anger can in some ways feel satisfying. In the end, what it does is it doesn't allow you to become who you were created to be, it actually starts to destroy life. And you find that your heart, your life is further away from God intended. If God created us, He knows us, then He knows the restrictions, the right restrictions that, bring the, that lead us to life. Well, the final question is, and this is the good one, how do we know we can trust our dad? Because some of us had some bad fathers, maybe that set up some bad laws in our lives. Well, how do we know that we can trust what God has given us? This is how we know. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. That Jesus in everything he he did delighted to do the will of God. And what was the will of God for you? That Jesus Christ might sacrifice everything that he had to give his life for us 
so that we might know a Father that loves us, cares for us, and wants us to experience life. How do we know that we can trust God's commands? We know through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he was willing to lay down his life for us. And see, when we gather on Sunday morning, and certainly the first Sunday morning of the month, and we celebrate communion together, it's not a tradition. Rather, what we experience in communion is an illustration of the love of God poured out for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that he who knew no sin became sin, meaning he received the penalty of sin on our behalf, that we might become, you ready? The children of God. The children that are being reparented by a father who has expressed love through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we come this morning, I hope as we celebrate communion, we'll take the time to reflect on the one hand, Lord, what are the things I'm listening to in life that, that need to change? And then second, Lord, how can I allow the word that you've planted in me to be a force that works through me to impact this community? You know, this morning as we share communion, uh, I'm going to invite in just a minute those that are going to come up and uh, share communion with us. And we want to encourage you during this time really to take your time. When you're ready, you can get up and walk towards the front. There'll be somebody up front to meet you there. Uh, they'll allow you to pull the bread from the loaf, and I encourage you to take a, a good piece. And then once you pull the bread, they'll say, this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And they'll present the cup, and they'll say, this is Christ's blood, which was shed for you. And take your time. If you want to dip into the cup and then maybe sit back, sit back down, you're welcome to do that. You can even come up front and take the time to receive it there. But those of you that do not want to get up, uh, we have some in the back who will, uh, will see that you're sitting. They can bring it to you if you want them to. Uh, just maybe turn your head, let them know, and they want, to, they want to share that with you. So those that are going to share communion, would you come up? Would the worship team come up? And let me pray for us as we, um, we spend this time together. Father, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, while we were in darkness, Father, while we rejected the law of God, while we called your law foolishness, I mean, let's be honest, we were offended at what you said. And yet we didn't submit to your law because our offense was taken away. We submitted to your law because we experienced the power of the risen Christ in us. You opened our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We realize, Lord, that what you want for us is life. And so submitting to you, Father, trusting you, obeying you, doesn't lead to a lack of freedom, but it leads to a fullness of life. So as we share in communion this morning, Father, would you meet us here? Would you search our hearts and know us? And Lord, would you enable us to confess our need from you? We love you, Father. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's celebrate communion together.